Welcome to Unit 3, the research process and theories in research. In Unit 3, we have two chapters uh, in our textbook. Uh, chapter 3 uh, looks at the research process, and Chapter 4 focuses on theories in research, also including a presentation by Dr. Jason Underwood uh, looking at literature review and the, the basics of, of conducting a literature review. Um, here in Unit 3, you'll be um, completing not only a quiz on the readings, but a, a problem sheet two, which is a, a lit review primer. So taking what you uh, explored and the topic that you proposed in topic sheet one, uh, what would be a very brief high level uh, lit review um, for those that particular topic. And so um, the resources here in unit three are supporting and providing you that context to, to conduct that uh, a, a brief lit review. So sit back, relax, enjoy this content, and I'll look forward to um, our discussion as well as to uh, seeing your problem sheet too. Chapter three, the research process. In chapter one, we saw that scientific research is the process of acquiring scientific knowledge using the scientific method. But how is such research conducted? This chapter delves into the process of scientific research and the assumptions and outcomes of the research process. Paradigms of Social Research Our design and conduct of research is shaped by our mental models or frames of reference that we use to organize our reasoning and observations. These mental models or frames or belief systems are called paradigms. The word paradigm was popularized by Thomas Kuhn, 1962 in his book The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he examined the history of the natural sciences to identify patterns of activities that shape the progress of science. Similar ideas are applicable to social sciences as well, where a social reality can be viewed by different people in different ways, which may constrain their thinking and reasoning about the observed phenomenon. For instance, Conservatives and liberals tend to have very different perceptions of the role of government in people's lives, and hence have different opinions on how to solve social problems. Conservatives may believe that lowering taxes is the best way to stimulate a stagnant economy because it increases people's disposable income and spending, which in turn expands business output and employment. In contrast, liberals may believe that governments should invest more directly in job creation programs, such as public works and infrastructure projects, which will increase employment and people's ability to consume and drive the economy. Likewise, Western societies place greater emphasis on individual rights, such as one's right to privacy, right to free speech, and right to bear arms. In contrast, Asian societies tend to balance the rights of individuals against the rights of families, organizations, and the government, and therefore tend to be more communal and less individualistic in their policies. Such differences in perspective often leave Westerners to criticize Asian governments for being autocratic, while Asians criticize Western societies for being greedy, having high crime rates, and creating a cult of the individual. Our personal paradigms are like colored glasses that govern how we view the world and how we structure our thoughts about what we see in the world. Paradigms are often hard to recognize because they are implicit, assumed, and taken for granted. However, recognizing these paradigms is key to making sense of and reconciling differences in people's perceptions of the same social phenomenon. For instance, 
Why do liberals believe that the best way to improve secondary education is to hire more teachers, but conservatives believe that privatizing education, using such means as school vouchers, are more effective in achieving the same goal? Because conservatives place more faith in the competitive markets, example, in free competition between schools competing for education dollars, while liberals believe more in labor, in having more teachers in schools. Likewise, in social science research, if one were to understand why a certain technology was successfully implemented in one organization but failed miserably in another, a researcher looking at the world through a rational lens will look for rational explanations of the problem, such as inadequate technology or poor fit between technology and the task context where it is being utilized, while another research looking at the same problem through a social lens may seek out social deficiencies such as inadequate user training or lack of management support, while those seeing it through a political lens will look for instances of organizational politics that may subvert the technology implementation process. Hence, subconscious paradigms often constrain the concepts that researchers attempt to measure, their observations, and their subsequent interpretations of a phenomenon. However, given the complex nature of social phenomenon, it is possible that all of the above paradigms are partially correct and that a fuller understanding of the problem may require an understanding and application of multiple paradigms. Two popular paradigms today among social science researchers are positivism and post-positivism. Positivism based on the works of French philosopher Auguste Comte, was the dominant scientific paradigm until the mid-20th century. It holds that science, or knowledge creation, should be restricted to what can be observed and measured. Positivism tends to rely exclusively on theories that can be directly tested. Though positivism was originally an attempt to separate scientific inquiry from religion, where the precepts could not be objectively observed, positivism led to empiricism, or a blind faith in observed data, and a rejection of any attempt to extend or reason beyond observable facts. Since human thoughts and emotions could not be directly measured, they were not considered to be legitimate topics for scientific research. Frustrations with the strictly empirical nature of positivist philosophy led to the development of post-positivism, or post-modernism, during the mid to late 20th century. Post-positivism argues that one can make reasonable inferences about a phenomenon by combining empirical observations with logical reasoning. Post-positivists view science as not certain, but probabilistic, based on many contingencies, and often seek to explore these contingencies to understand social reality better. The post-positivist camp has further framed into subjectivists who view the world as a subjective construction of our subjective minds rather than as an objective reality, and critical realists who believe that there is an external reality that is independent of a person's thinking. But we can never know such reality with any degree of certainty. Burrell and Morgan, in their seminal book, Sociological Paradigms and Organizational Analysis, 
suggested that the way social science researchers view and study social phenomena is shaped by two fundamental sets of philosophical assumptions, ontology and epistemology. Ontology refers to our assumptions about how we see the world. Does the world consist mostly of social order or constant change? Epistemology refers to our assumptions about the best way to study the world. Should we use an objective or subjective approach to study social reality? Using these two sets of assumptions, we can categorize social science research as belonging to one of four categories. If researchers view the world as consisting mostly of social order, ontology, and hence seek to study patterns of ordered events or behaviors, and believe that the best way to study such a world is using an objective approach, or epistemology, that is independent of the person conducting the observation or interpretation, such as by using standardized data collection tools like surveys, then they are adopting a par paradigm of functionalism. However, if they believe that the best way to study social order is through the subjective interpretation of participants in involved, such as by interviewing different participants and reconciling differences among their responses, using their own subjective perspectives, then they are employing an interpretivism paradigm. If researchers believe that the world consists of radical change and seek to understand or enact change using an objectivist approach, then they are employing a radical structuralism paradigm. If they wish to understand social change using the subjective paradigms of the participants involved, then they are following a radical humanism paradigm. To date, the majority of social science research has emulated the natural sciences and followed the functionalist paradigm. Functionalists believe that social order or patterns can be understood in terms of their functional components and therefore attempt to break down a problem into small components and studying one or more components in detail using objectivist techniques such as surveys and experimental research. However, with the emergence of post-positivist thinking, a small but growing number of social science researchers are attempting to understand social order using subjectivist techniques such as interviews and ethnographic studies. Radical humanism and radical structuralism continues to represent a negligible portion of social science research because scientists are primarily concerned with understanding generalizable patterns of behavior events or phenomena, rather than idiosyncratic or changing events. Nevertheless, if you wish to study social change, such as why democratic movements are increasingly emerging in Middle Eastern countries, or why this movement was successful in Tunisia, took a longer path to success in Libya, and is still not successful in Syria, then perhaps radical humanism is the right approach for such a study. Social and organizational phenomena generally consists of elements of both order and change. For instance, organizational success depends on formalized business processes, work procedures, and job responsibilities, while being simultaneously constrained by a constantly changing mix of competitors, competing products, suppliers, and customer base in the business environment. 
hence a holistic and more complete understanding of social phenomena, such as why are some organizations more successful than others, require an appreciation and application of a multi-paradigmatic approach to research. Overview of the research process. So how do our mental paradigms shape social science research? At its core, all scientific research is an iterative process of observation, rationalism, and validation. In the observation phase, we observe a natural or social phenomenon, event, or behavior that interests us. In the rationalization phase, we try to make sense of or the observed phenomenon event or the behavior by logically connecting the different pieces of the puzzle that we observe, which in some cases may lead to the construction of a theory. Finally, in the validation phase, we test our theories using a scientific method through a process of data collection and analysis, and in doing so, possibly modify or extend our initial theory. However, research designs vary based on whether the researcher starts an observation and attempts to rationalize the observations, this is called inductive research, or whether the researcher starts at an ex-ante rationalization or a theory and attempts to validate the theory, deductive research. Hence, the observation, rationalization, validation cycle is very similar to the inductive deduction cycle of research discussed in Chapter 1. Most traditional research tends to be deductive and functionalist in nature. Figure 3.2 provides a schematic view of such a research project. This figure depicts a series of activities to be performed in a functionalist research, uh, characterized into three phases, exploration, research design, and research execution. Note that this generalized design is not a roadmap or a flowchart for all research. It applies only to functionalist research, and it can and should be modified to fit the needs of a specific project. The first phase of research is exploration. This phase includes exploring and selecting research questions for further investigation, examining the published literature in the area of inquiry to understand the current state of knowledge in that area, and identifying theories that may help answer the research questions of interest. The first step in the exploration phase is identifying one or more research questions, dealing with a specific behavior, event, or phenomena of interest. Research questions are specific questions about a behavior, event, or phenomena of interest that you wish to seek answers for in your research. Examples include what factors motivate consumers to purchase goods and services online without knowing the vendors of these goods or services. How can we make high school students more creative? And why do some people commit terrorist acts? Research questions can delve into questions of what, why, how, when, and so forth. More interesting research questions are those that appeal to a broader population. For example, how can firms innovate uh, is a more interesting question than how can Chinese firms innovate in the service sector. Address real and complex problems in contrast to hypothetical or toy problems, and where the answers are not obvious. Narrowly focused research questions, often with a binary yes-no answer, tend to be less useful and less interesting and less suited to capturing the subtle nuances of social phenomena. Uninteresting research questions generally lead to uninteresting and unpublishable research findings. 
The next step is to conduct a literature review of the domain of interest. The purpose of a literature review is threefold. Number one, to survey the current state of knowledge in the area of inquiry. Two, to identify key authors, articles, theories, and findings in that area. And three, to identify gaps in knowledge in that research area. Literature review is commonly done today using computerized keyword searches in online databases. Keywords can be combined using AND and OR operators to narrow down or expand the search results. Once a short list of relevant articles is generated from the keyword search, the researcher must then manually browse through each article, or at least its abstract section, to determine the suitability of that article for a detailed review. Literature reviews should be reasonably complete and not restricted to a few journals, a few years, or a specific methodology. Reviewed articles may be summarized in the form of tables and can be further structured using organizing frameworks such as a concept matrix. A well-conducted literature review should indicate whether the initial research questions have already been addressed in the literature, which would obviate the need to study them again, whether there are newer or more interesting research questions available, and whether the original research questions should be modified or changed in light of findings of the literature review. The review can also provide some intuitions or potential answers to the questions of interest and or help identify theories that have previously been used to address similar questions. Since functionalist deductive research involves theory testing, the third step is to identify one or more theories that can help address the desired research questions. While the literature review may uncover a wide range of concepts or constructs potentially related to the phenomenon of interest, a theory will help identify which of these constructs is logically relevant to the target phenomenon and how. Foregoing theories may result in measuring a wide range of less relevant, marginally relevant, or irrelevant constructs, while also minimizing the chances of obtaining results that are meaningful and not by pure chance. In functionalist research, theories can be used as the logical basis for postulating hypotheses for empirical testing. Obviously, not all theories are well-suited for studying all social phenomena. Theories must be carefully selected based on their fit with the target problem and the extent to which their assumptions are consistent with that of the target problem. We will examine theories and the process of theorizing in detail in the next chapter. The next phase in the research process is research design. This process is concerned with creating a blueprint of the activities to take in order to satisfactorily answer the research questions identified in the exploration phase. This includes selecting a research method, operationalizing constructs of interest, and devising an appropriate sampling strategy. Operationalization is the process of designing precise measures for abstract theoretical constructs. This is a major problem in social science research given that many of the constructs, such as prejudice, alienation, and liberalism, are hard to define, let alone measure accurately. Operationalization starts with specifying an operational definition or a conceptualization of the constructs of interest. Next, the researcher can search the literature to see if there are existing pre-validated measures matching their operational definition that can be used directly or modified to measure their constructs of interest. 
if such measures are not available or if existing measures are poor or reflect a different conceptualization than that intended by the researcher, new instruments may have to be designed for measuring those constructs. This means specifying exactly how the desired construct will be measured. Uh, example would be how many items or what items and so forth. This can be easily a, a long and laborious process with multiple rounds of pretests and modifications before the newly designed instrument can be accepted as scientifically valid. We will discuss operationalization of constructs in a future chapter on measurement. Simultaneously, with operationalization, the researcher must also decide what research method they wish to employ for collecting data to address their research questions of interest. Such methods may include quantitative methods, such as experiments or survey research, or qualitative methods, such as case research or action research, or possibly a combination of both. If an experiment is desired, then what is the experimental design? If survey, do you plan a to uh, kind of a mail survey, a telephone survey, a web survey, or a combination? For complex, uncertain, and multifaceted social phenomena, multi-method approaches may be more suitable, which may help leverage the unique strengths of each research method and generate insights that may not be obtained using a single method. Researchers must also carefully choose the target population from which they wish to collect data and a sampling strategy to select a sample from that population. For instance, should they survey individuals or firms or work groups within firms? What types of individuals or firms they wish to target? Sampling strategy is closely related to the unit of analysis in a research problem. While selecting a sample, Reasonable care should be taken to avoid a biased sample that may generate biased observations. Sampling is covered in depth in a later chapter. At this stage, it is often a good idea to write a research proposal detailing all of the decisions made in the preceding stages of the research process and the rationale behind each decision. The, this multi-part proposal should address what research questions you wish to study and why, the prior state of knowledge in this area, theories you wish to employ along with the hypotheses to be tested, how to measure constructs, what research method is to be employed and why, and the desired sampling strategy. Funding agencies typically require such a proposal in order to select the best proposals for funding. Even if funding is not sought for a research project, a proposal may serve as a useful vehicle for seeking feedback from other researchers and identifying potential problems with the research project. For example, whether some feedback, um, some important constructs maybe were missing from the study uh, before starting the data collection. This initial feedback is invaluable because it is often too late to correct critical problems after data is collected in a research study. Having decided who to study, being the subjects, what to measure, the concepts, and how to collect data, the research method, the researcher is now ready to proceed in the research execution phase. This includes pilot testing the measurement instruments, data collection, and data analysis. Pilot testing is often overlooked, but extremely important part of the research process. It helps detect potential problems in your research design and or instrumentation. 
uh, whether the questions asked are intelligible to the targeted sample, and to ensure that the measurement instruments used in the study are reliable and valid measures of the constructs of interest. The pilot sample is usually a small subset of the target population. After a successful pilot testing, the researcher may then proceed with data collection using the sampled population. The data collected may be quantitative or qualitative, depending on the research method employed. Following data collection, the data is analyzed and interpreted for the purpose of drawing conclusions regarding the research questions of interest. Depending on the type of data collected, quantitative or qualitative, data analysis may be quantitative. It may employ statistical techniques such as regression or structural equation modeling, or qualitative, meaning it's using coding and content analysis. The final phase of research involves preparing the final research report documenting the entire research process and its findings in the form of a research paper, dissertation, or monograph. This report should outline in detail all the choices made during the research process. The examples would be the theory used, contracts selected, measures used, uh, the research methods, sampling, etc. And why as well as the outcomes of each phase of the research process. The research process must be described in sufficient detail so as to allow other researchers to replicate your study, test the findings, or assess whether the influences derived are scientifically acceptable. Of course, having a ready research proposal will greatly simplify and quicken the process of writing the finished report. Note that research is of no value unless the research process and outcomes are documented for future generations. Such documentation is essential for the incremental progress of research. Common mistakes in research. The research process is fraught with problems and pitfalls, and novice researchers often find, after investigating substantial amounts of time and effort in a research project, that their research questions were not sufficiently answered, or that the findings were not interesting enough, or that the research was not of acceptable scientific quality. Such problems typically result in research papers being rejected by journals. Some of the more frequent mistakes are described below. Insufficiently motivated research questions. Oftentimes we choose our pet problems that are interesting to us but not to the scientific community at large. Uh, for example, it does not generate new knowledge or insight about the phenomena being investigated. Because the research process involves a significant investment of time and effort on the researcher's part, the researcher must be certain and be able to convince others that the research questions they seek to answer in fact deal with real problems and not hypothetical problems that affect a substantial portion of a population and has not been adequately addressed in prior research. Pursuing research fads. Another common mistake is pursuing popular topics with limited shelf life. A typical example is studying technologies or practices that are popular today. Because research takes several years to complete and publish, it is possible that popular interest in these fads may die down by the time the research is completed and submitted for publication. A better strategy may be to study timeless topics that have always persisted through the years. Unresearchable problems. Some research problems may not be answered adequately based on observed evidence alone, 
or using currently accepted methods and procedures. Such problems are best avoided. However, some unresearchable, ambiguously defined problems may be modified or fine-tuned into well-defined and useful research problems. Favored Research Methods Many researchers have a tendency to recast a research problem so that it is amenable to their favorite research method, for example, survey research. This is an unfortunate trend. Research methods should be chosen to best fit a research problem and not the other way around. Blind data mining. Some researchers have a, the tendency to collect data first using instruments that are already available and then figure out what to do with it. Note that data collection is only one step in a long and elaborate process of planning, designing, and executing research. In fact, a series of other activities are needed in a research process prior to data collection. If researchers jump into data collection without such elaborate planning, the data collected will likely be irrelevant, imperfect, or useless, and their data collection efforts may be entirely wasted. An abundance of data cannot make up for deficits in research planning and design, and particularly for the lack of interesting research questions. Chapter 4, Theories in Scientific Research. As we know from previous chapters, science is knowledge represented as a collection of theories derived using the scientific method. In this chapter, we will examine what is a theory, why do we need theories in research, what are the building blocks of a theory, how to evaluate theories, how can we apply theories in research, and also presents illustrative examples of five theories frequently used in social science research. Theories. Theories are explanations of a natural or social behavior, event, or phenomenon. More formally, a scientific theory is a system of constructs, concepts, and propositions, being the relationships between those constructs, that collectively presents a logical, systematic, and coherent explanation of a phenomenon of interest within some assumptions and boundary conditions. Theories should explain why things happen rather than just describe or predict. Note that it is possible to predict events or behaviors using a set of predictors without necessarily explaining why such events are taking place. For instance, market analysts predict fluctuations in the stock market based on market announcements, earnings reports of major companies, and new data from the Federal Reserve and other agencies based on previously observed correlations. Prediction requires only correlations. In contrast, explanations require causations, or understanding of cause-effect relationships. Establishing causation requires three conditions. Number one, correlations between two constructs. Two, temporal precedence. The cause must precede the effect in time. And three, rejection of alternative hypotheses through testing. Scientific theories are different from theological, philosophical, or other explanations, and that scientific theories can be empirically tested using scientific methods. Explanations can be ideographic or nomothetic. Ideographic explanations are those that explain a single situation or event in idiosyncratic detail. For example, 
you did poorly on the exam because, number one, you forgot that you had an exam that day. Number two, you arrived late to the exam due to a traffic jam. Three, you panicked midway through the exam. Four, you had to work late the previous evening and could not study for the exam. Or even five, your dog ate your textbook. The explanations may be detailed, accurate, and valid, but they may not apply to other similar situations, even involving the same person, and hence are not generalizable. In contrast, nomothetic explanations seek to explain a class or situations or events rather than a specific situation or event. For example, students who do poorly in exams do so because they did not spend adequate time preparing for exams or that they suffer from nervousness, attention deficit, or some other medical disorder. Because nomothetic explanations are designed to be generalizable across situations, events, or people, they tend to be less precise, less complete, and less detailed. However, they explain economically using only a few explanatory variables. Because theories are also intended to serve as generalized explanations for patterns of events, behaviors, or phenomena, theoretical explanations are generally nomothetic in nature. While understanding theories, it's also important to understand what theory is not. Theory is not data, facts, typologies, taxonomies, or empirical findings. A collection of facts is not a theory just as a pile of stones is not a house. Likewise, a collection of constructs is not a theory because theories must go well beyond constructs to include propositions, explanations, and boundary conditions. Data, facts, and findings operate at the empirical or observational level, while theories operate at a conceptual level and are based on logic rather than observations. There are many benefits to using theories in research. First, theories provide the underlying logic of the occurrence of natural or social phenomenon by explaining what are the key drivers and key outcomes of the target phenomenon, and why and at what underlying processes are responsible for driving that phenomenon. Second, they aid in decision and sense-making by helping us synthesize prior empirical findings within a theoretical framework and reconcile contradictory findings by discovering contingent factors influencing the relationship between two constructs in different studies. Third, theories provide guidance for future research by helping identify constructs and relationships that are worthy of future research. Fourth, theories can contribute to cumulative knowledge building by bridging gaps between other theories and by causing existing theories to be reevaluated in a new light. However, theories can also have their own share of limitations. As simplified explanations of reality, theories may not always provide adequate explanations of the phenomenon of interest based on a limited set of constructs and relationships. Theories are designed to be simple and parsimonious explanations, while reality may be significantly more complex. Furthermore, theories may impose blinders or limit researchers' range of vision, causing them to miss out on important concepts that are not defined by the theory. Building Blocks of a Theory David Wetton suggests that there are four building blocks of a theory. Constructs, propositions, logic, 
and boundary conditions and assumptions. Constructs capture the what of theories. For example, what concepts are important for explaining a phenomenon? Propositions capture the how. How are the concepts related to each other? Logic represents the why. Why are those concepts related? And boundary conditions and assumptions examines the who, when, and where. Under what circumstances will those concepts and relationships work? Though concept structs and propositions were previously discussed in Chapter 2, we describe them again here for the sake of completeness. Constructs are abstract concepts specified at a high level of abstraction that are chosen specifically to explain the phenomenon of interest. Recall from Chapter 2 that constructs may be unidimensional, meaning they embody a single concept, such as weight or age, or multidimensional, meaning they embody multiple underlying concepts, such as personality or culture. While some constructs, such as age, education, and firm size are easy to understand. Others, such as creativity, prejudice, and organizational agility, may be more complex and abstruse. And still others, such as trust, attitude, and learning, may represent temporal tendencies rather than steady states. Nevertheless, all constructs must have clear and unambiguous operational definition that should specify exactly how the construct will be measured and at what level of analysis, individual, group, organizational, etc. Measurable representations of abstract constructs are called variables. For instance, intelligent quotient, IQ score, is a variable that is purported to measure an abstract construct called intelligence. As noted earlier, scientific research proceeds along two planes, a theoretical plane and an empirical plane. Constructs are uh, conceptualized at the theoretical plane, while variables are operationalized and measured at the empirical or observational plane. Furthermore, variables may be independent, dependent, mediating, or moderating, as discussed in Chapter 2. The distinction between constructs conceptualized at the theoretical level and variables measured at the empirical level is shown in Figure 4.1. Propositions are associations postulated between constructs based on deductive logic. Propositions are stated in declarative form and should ideally indicate a cause-effect relationship. For example, if X occurs, then Y will follow. Note that propositions may be conjectural but must be testable and should be rejected if they are not supported by empirical observations. However, like constructs, propositions are stated at the theoretical level and they can only be tested by examining the corresponding relationship between measurable variables and those constructs. The empirical formulation of propositions stated as relationships between variables is called hypotheses. The distinction between propositions uh, formulated at the theoretical level and hypotheses, which are tested at the empirical level, is depicted in Figure 4.1. The third building block of a theory is the logic that provides the basis for justifying the propositions as postulated. Logic acts like a glue that connects the theoretical constructs and provides meaning and relevance to the relationships between these constructs. 
Logic also represents the explanation that lies at the core of a theory. Without logic, propositions will be ad hoc, arbitrary and meaningless, and cannot be tied into a cohesive system of propositions that is the heart of any theory. Finally, all theories are constrained by assumptions about values, time, and space, and boundary conditions that govern where the theory can be applied and where it cannot be applied. For example, many economic theories assume that human beings are rational, or bounded rational, and employ utility maximization based on cost and benefit expectations as a way to understand human behavior. In contrast, political science theories assume that people are more political than rational and try to position themselves in their professional or personal environment in a way that maximizes their power and control over others. Given the nature of their underlying assumptions, economic and political theories are not directly comparable and researchers should not use economic theories in their objective if their objective is to understand the power structure or its evolution in an organization. Likewise, theories may have implicit cultural assumptions, whether they apply to individualistic or collective cultures, for example. Temporal assumptions, for example, whether they apply to early stages or later stages of human behavior. And spatial assumptions, for example, whether they apply to certain localities but not to others. If a theory is to be properly tested or used, it all of its implicit assumptions that form the boundaries of that theory must be properly understood. Unfortunately, theorists rarely state their implicit assumptions clearly, which leads to frequent misapplications of theories to problem situations in research. Attributes of a good theory Theories are simplified in often partial explanations of complex social reality. As such, there can be good explanations or poor explanations, and consequently there can be good theories and poor theories. How can we evaluate the goodness of a given theory? Different criteria have been proposed by different researchers, the more important of which are listed below. Logical Consistency are the theoretical constructs, propositions, boundary conditions, and assumptions logically consistent with each other? If some of these building blocks of a theory are inconsistent with each other, then the theory is a poor theory. Explanatory power. How much does a th given theory explain or predict reality? Good theories obviously explain the target phenomenon better than rival theories, as often measured by variance explained or R-square value in regression equations. Falsifiability. British philosopher Karl Popper stated in the 1940s that for theories to be valid, they must be falsifiable. Falsifiability ensures that the theory is potentially disprovable if empirical data does not match with theoretical propositions, which allows for their empirical testing by researchers. In other words, theories cannot be theories unless they can be empirically tested. Tautological statements such as a day with high temperatures is a hot day are not empirically testable because a hot day is defined and measured as a day with high temperatures and hence such statements cannot be viewed as a theoretical proposition. Falsifiability requires presence of rival explanations. It ensures that the constructs are adequately measurable and so forth. However, 
Note that saying that a theory is falsifiable is not the same as saying that a theory should be falsified. If a theory is indeed falsified based on empirical evidence, then it was probably a poor theory to begin with. Parsimony. Parsimony examines how much of a phenomenon is explained with how few variables. The concept is attributed to 14th century English logician Father William of Ockham, which states that among competing explanations that sufficiently explained the observed evidence, the simplest theory, meaning the one that uses the smallest number of variables to make the fewest assumptions, is the best. Explanation of a complex social phenomenon can always be increased by adding more and more constructs. However, such approach defeats the purpose of having a theory, which are intended to be simplified and generalizable explanations of reality. Parsimony relates to the degrees of freedom in a given theory. Parsimonious theories have higher degrees of freedom, which allow them to be more easily generalized to other contexts, settings, and populations. Approaches to theorizing. How do researchers build theories? Steinfeld and Falk recommend four such approaches. The first approach is to build theories inductively, based on observed patterns of events or behaviors. Such approach is often called grounded theory building because the theory is grounded in empirical observations. This technique is heavily dependent on the observational and interpretive abilities of the researcher, and the resulting theory may be subjective and non-confirmable. Furthermore, observing certain patterns of events will not necessarily make a theory unless the researcher is able to provide consistent explanations for the observed patterns. We will discuss the grounded theory approach in a later chapter on qualitative research. The second approach to theory building is to conduct a bottom-up conceptual analysis to identify different sets of predictors relevant to the phenomenon of interest using a predefined framework. One such framework may be a simple input process output framework where the researcher may look for different categories of inputs, such as individual, organizational, and or technological factors, potential uh, related to the phenomenon of interest, the output, and describe the underlying processes that link these factors to the target phenomenon. This is also an inductive approach that relies heavily on the inductive abilities of the researcher, and interpretation may be biased by the researcher's prior knowledge of the phenomenon being studied. The third approach to theorizing is to extend or modify existing theories to explain a new context, such as extending theories of individual learning to explain organizational learning. While making such an extension, certain concepts, propositions, and or boundary conditions of the old theory may be retained and others modified to fit the new context. This deductive approach leverages the rich inventory of social science theories developed by prior theoreticians and is an efficient way of building new theories by building on existing ones. The fourth approach is to apply existing theories in entirely new contexts by drawing upon the structural similarities between the two contexts. This approach relies on reasoning by analogy and is probably the most creative way of theorizing using a deductive approach. For instance, Marcus used analogic similarities between a nuclear explosion and uncontrolled growth of networks or network-based businesses to propose a critical mass theory of network growth. 
Just as a nuclear explosion requires a critical mass of radioactive material to sustain a nuclear explosion, Marcus suggested that a network requires a critical mass of users to sustain its growth, and without such critical mass, users may leave the network, causing an eventual demise of the network. Examples of Social Science Theories In this section, we present brief overviews of a few illustrative theories from different social science disciplines. These theories explain different types of social behaviors using a set of constructs, propositions, boundary conditions, assumptions, and underlying logic. Note that the following represents just a simplistic introduction to these theories. Readers are advised to consult the original sources of these theories for more details and insights on each theory. Agency theory. Agency theory, also called principal agent theory, it's a classic theory in the organizational economics literature. It was originally proposed by Ross to explain two-party relationships, such as those between an employer and its employees, between organizational executives and shareholders, and between buyers and sellers, whose goals are not congruent with each other. The goal of agency theory is to specify optimal contracts and the conditions under which such contracts may help minimize the effect of goal incongruence. The core assumptions of this theory are that human beings are self-interested individuals, boundedly rational and risk-averse, and the theory can be applied at the individual or organizational level. The two parties in this theory are the principal and the agent. The principal employs the agent to perform certain tasks on its behalf. While the principal's goal is quick and effective completion of the assigned task, the agent's goal may be working at its own pace, avoiding risks and seeking self-interest, such as personal pay over corporate interests. Hence, the goal incongruence. Compounding the nature of the problem may be information asymmetry, problems caused by the principal's inability to adequately observe the agent's behavior or accurately evaluate the agent's skill sets. Such asymmetry may lead to agency problems where the agent may not put forth the effort needed to get the task done, the moral hazard problem, or may rep misrepresent its expertise or skills to get the job but not perform as expected, the adverse selection problem. Typical contracts that are behavior-based, such as monthly salary, cannot overcome these problems. Hence, agency theory recommends using outcome-based contracts, such as commissions or a fee payable upon task completion, or mixed contracts that combine behavior-based and outcome-based incentives. An employee stock option plans are, is an example of an outcome-based contract, while employee pay is a behavior-based contract. Agency theory also recommends tools that principals may employ to improve the efficacy of behavior-based contracts, such as investing in monitoring mechanisms, such as hiring supervisors to counter the information asymmetry caused by moral hazard, designing renewable contracts contingent on agents' performance. These could be performance assessments, makes the contract partially outcome-based, or by improving the structure of the assigned task to make it more programmable and therefore more observable. Theory of Planned Behavior Postulated by Asgen, the theory of planned behavior, TPB, 
is a generalized theory of human behavior in the social psychology literature that can be used to study a wide range of individual behaviors. It presumes that individual behavior represents conscious reasoned choice and is shaped by cognitive thinking and social pressures. The theory postulates that behaviors are based on one's intention regarding that behavior, which in turn is a function of the person's attitude toward the behavior, subjective norm regarding that behavior, and conceptual control and perception over that behavior. Attitude is defined as the individual's overall positive or negative feelings about performing the behavior in question, which may be assessed as a summation of one's beliefs regarding the different consequences of that behavior, weighted by the desirability of those consequences. Subjective norm refers to one's perception of whether people important to that person expect the person to perform the intended behavior and represent it as a weighted combination of the expected norms of different referent groups such as friends, colleagues, or supervisors at work. Behavioral control is one's perception of internal or external controls constraining the behavior in question. Internal controls may include the person's ability to perform the intended behavior, self-efficacy, while external control refers to the ability of external resources needed to perform the behavior or facilitating conditions. TPB also suggests that sometimes people may intend to perform a given behavior but lack the resources needed to do so, and therefore suggests that behavioral control can have a direct effect on behavior, in addition to the indirect effect mediated by intention. TPB is an extension of an earlier theory called the theory of reasoned action, which included attitude and subjective norm as key drivers of intention, but not behavioral control. The latter construct was added by Asgen in TPB to account for circumstances when people may have incomplete control over their own behaviors, such as not having high-speed internet access for web surfing. Innovation Diffusion Theory Innovation Diffusion Theory, IDT, is a seminal theory in the communications literature that explains how innovations are adopted within a population of potential adopters. The concept was first studied by French sociologist Gabriel Tarde, but the theory was developed by Everett Rogers in 1962, based on observations of 508 diffusion studies. The four key elements in this theory are innovation, communication channels, time, and social system. Innovations may include new technologies, new practices, or new ideas, and adopters may be individuals or organizations. At the macro population level, IDT views a new innovation and its potential benefits through communication channels, such as mass media or prior adopters, and are persuaded to adopt it. Diffusion is a temporal process. The diffusion process starts off slow among a few early adopters and then picks up speed as the innovation is adopted by the mainstream population. And finally, slows down as the adopter population reaches saturation. The cumulative adoption pattern, therefore, an S-shaped curve as shown in figure 4.3, and the adopter distribution represents a normal distribution. All adopters are not identical, and adopters can be classified into innovators, early adopters, early majority, 
late majority, and laggards, based on their time of their adoption. The rate of diffusion also depends on characteristics of the social system, such as the presence of opinion leaders, experts whose opinions are valued by others, and change agents, people who influence others' behaviors. At the micro or adopter level, Rogers suggests that innovation adoption is a process consistent of five stages. One, knowledge, when adopters first learn about an innovation from mass media or inter interpersonal channels. Two, persuasion, when they are persuaded by prior adopters to try the innovation. Three, decision, their decision to accept or reject the innovation. Four, implementation, their initial utilization of the innovation. And five, confirmation, their decision to continue using it to its fullest potential. See figure 4.4. Five innovation characteristics are presumed to shape adopters' innovation adoption decisions. Number one, relative advantage. The expected benefits of an innovation relative to prior innovations. Two, compatibility. The extent to which the innovation fits with the adopter's work habits, beliefs, and values. Three, complexity. The extent to which the innovation is difficult to learn and use. Four, trial ability. The extent to which the innovation can be tested on a trial basis. And five, observability the extent to which the results of using the innovation can be clearly observed. The last two characteristics have since been dropped from many innovation studies. Complexity is negatively correlated to innovation adoption, while the other four factors are positively correlated. Innovation adoption also depends on personal factors, such as the adopter's risk-taking propensity, education level, cosmopolitanism, and communication influence. Early adopters are venturesome, well-educated, and rely more on mass media for information about the innovation, while later adopters rely more on interpersonal sources such as friends and family as their primary source of information. IDT has been criticized for having a pro-innovation bias, that is for presuming that all innovations are beneficial and will be eventually diffused across the entire population and because it does not allow for inefficient innovations such as fads or fashions to die off quickly without being adopted by the entire population or being replaced by better innovations. Elaboration Likelihood Model Developed by Petty and Capiopo, the Elaboration Likelihood Model, ELM, is a dual process theory of attitude formation or change in the psychology literature. It explains how individuals can be influenced to change their attitude toward a certain object, events, or behavior, and the relative efficacy of such change strategies. The ELM posits that one's attitude may be shaped by two routes of influence, the central route and the peripheral route, which differ in the amount of thoughtful information processing or elaboration required of people. See figure 4.5. The central route requires a person to think about issue-related arguments in an informational message and carefully scrutinize the merits and relevance of those arguments before forming an informed judgment about the target object. In the peripheral route, subjects rely on external cues such as the number of prior users, endorsements from experts, or likability of the endorser, rather than on the quality of arguments 
in framing their attitude towards the target object. The latter route is less cognitively demanding and the routes of attitude change are typically operationalized in the ELM using the argument quality and peripheral cues constructs respectively. Whether people will be influenced by the central or peripheral routes depends upon their ability and motivation to elaborate the central merits of an argument. This ability and motivation to elaborate is called elaboration likelihood. People in a state of elaboration likelihood, having a high ability and high motivation, are more likely to thoughtfully process the information presented and are therefore more influenced by argument quality, while those in the low elaboration likelihood state are more motivated by peripheral cues. Elaboration likelihood is a situational characteristic and not a personal trait. For instance, a doctor may employ the central route for diagnosing and treating a medical ailment by virtue of his or her expertise of the subject, but may rely on peripheral cues from auto mechanics to understand the problems with his car. As such, the theory has widespread implications about how to enact attitude change toward new products or ideas and even social change. General Deterrence Theory Two utilitarian philosophers of the 18th century, Cesare Beccaria and Jeremy Bentham, formulated General Deterrence Theory, GDT, as both an explanation of crime and a method for reducing it. GDT examines why certain individuals engage in deviant, antisocial, or criminal behaviors. This theory holds that people are fundamentally rational for both conforming and deviant behaviors, and that they freely choose deviant behaviors based on a rational cost-benefit calculation. Because people naturally choose utility-maximizing behaviors, Deviant choices that engender personal gain or pleasure can be controlled by increasing the costs of such behaviors in the form of punishments, countermeasures, as well as increasing the probability of apprehension. Swiftness, severity, and certainty of punishments are the key constructs in GDT. While classical positivist research in criminology seeks generalized causes of criminal behaviors such as poverty, lack of education, psychological conditions, and recommend strategies to rehabilitate criminals, such as by providing them job training and medical treatment, GDT focuses on the criminal decision-making process and situational factors that influence that process. Hence, a criminal's personal situation, such as his personal values, his influence, and his need for money, and the environmental context, such as how protected is the target, how efficient is the local police, how likely are criminals to be apprehended, play key roles in his, this decision-making process. The focus of GDT is not how to rehabilitate criminals and, the, uh, and to avert future criminal behaviors, but how to make criminal activities less attractive and therefore prevent crimes. To that end, target hardening, such as installing deadbolts and building self-defense skills, legal deterrence, such as eliminating parole for certain crimes, Three strikes law, so mandatory incarceration for three offenses, even if the offenses are minor and not worth imprisonment. And the death penalty, increasing the chances of apprehension using means such as neighborhood watch programs, special task forces on drugs or gang-related crimes, and increased police patrols and educational programs such as highly visible notices, such as trespassers will be prosecuted. These are effective in preventing crimes. 
This theory has interesting implications not only for traditional crimes, but also for contemporary white-collar crimes, such as insider trading, software piracy, and illegal sharing of music. And now here's Dr. Underwood talking about locating and reviewing related literature. Locating and reviewing related literature. Basically talk about three things. One, what the purposes of a literature review are. Two, how to go about finding literature related to your research question. And three, how you write a literature review once you have your sources together. The general purpose of a literature review is to relate the work that you plan on doing to previous research to provide context, to provide credibility for your research. You know, if you propose a research study and, and talk about your procedures and never talk about what anybody else has done, um, someone might get the sense that you're researching in a box, that you haven't looked out to see what have other people found, uh, whether there's support for your hypotheses, for your, for your hunches, for the reasons that you chose to, to research your topic in the first place. And it also lets the reader know if this article, this proposal, this study that you are writing is something that's going to interest them. It's something that has to do with their own interests and their own research. In many ways, a literature review helps you write a better proposal. For one thing, a literature review helps you refine your problem. So as you read articles that have to do with your topic, your variables, your research question, you find ways to redefine your problem, you find the limitations of your problem, you find the limitations of the research, of the literature, what other people have found and what they haven't found. Um, you establish the theoretical orientation. So what are the theories that your question are based around? Are there some important theoretical constructs like self-esteem or self-efficacy or um, financial regulation that those bodies of research could help inform your question? In addition, a good literature review helps you demonstrate the significance of your research questions. It helps you identify that your research question is important and that people should bother to read and that you should have bothered to do the research in the first place. A literature review also helps you to, to develop your specific hypotheses. So most of the time we start a research question based on some experience that we've had, some other literature that we've read, and diving more deeply into the related literature helps us to develop our own guess, our own hunch, our own specific hypothesis about what the likely outcomes of the study will be. And often, like a research question, the hypotheses then guide the rest of our study. Your literature review will also expose you to new ideas, to different concepts that you may or may not have thought were connected to the concept that you're interested in. So before we get into specific searching techniques, let's review the proposal guidelines for a minute. The proposal guidelines call for you to write a, a proposal with at least 12 references. Eight of them should be peer-reviewed articles. So these are articles that are subject to other experts in the fields reading those, and they appear in journals that are called peer-reviewed or sometimes called refereed articles. You can tell if an article is refereed often by looking at the inside cover of the journal or visiting the website of the journal. Also, we'll look at in the ERIC database where you can see if articles are peer-reviewed or not. The other sources should also be articles 
or secondary sources like books. We're usually not including websites, blogs, and certainly not opinion, and I'll talk about perhaps an exception to that in just a minute. Um, but the other six should be articles, but they can be non-peer-reviewed. They could be magazine articles, things that appear in trade journals, uh, papers published on websites, things like that. We usually don't, as I said, use websites, blogs, the, the only time you could make a case for the inclusion of something that could be considered opinion is if you're providing a qualitative study or another study that talks about the perceptions of some participants and you find it necessary to describe the perceptions of some group. And so in that case, the use of an opinion document, a document that could be considered non-academic opinion, as, as part of your literature review. But we certainly wouldn't want that to be a major part of the review or the foundation for your research study. So for the most part, you're going to use uh, six peer-reviewed articles and six other articles that are would not be considered opinion. Um, well, articles that are published on websites is a different story. Those things are still be considered articles. Uh, they just wouldn't be part of that peer-reviewed group. So we have some choices when we start to look for resources. And we're going to talk about basically three. One, the educational databases found on the NIU website. Two, the business databases and other databases that you can find um, also through the NIU portal. And three, Google or Google Scholar searching, uh, and, and we can lump this in with all other kinds of uh, search engine um, research on the web, but we'll use Google and Google Scholar in our demonstration. So when we're searching these databases, one of the first things we can look for, or one of the first places to start, is to start with the variables in your research question. So as you've identified, and you will start to identify the variables in your problem sheets, you can use those as search terms. Synonyms for those variables would also be very helpful, and there are some ways that the ERIC databases can help us with that. Uh, we'll take a look at that in a few minutes. Um, identifying database descriptors is something that will be important, and we'll also look at that. Now, when you're searching the web, you can follow the same pattern. In other words, using the variables, using synonyms for the variables, using important terms that are in your research question or problem statement. The thing that's different about the web is the web is a little more adept at taking longer, more specific statements and turning it into um, a query. So whereas in a database, you're going to limit your, your search to a few terms at a time and be very deliberate about which terms you put together, which terms you use or, which terms you use and. On the web, you can be a little more um, free-flowing. You can be a little more flexible. So it, it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility to type your entire research question or copy and paste your entire research question from your proposal into Google and see what you get. Google or other search engines do a good job of using the terms that are important to try to provide the context for the search. And uh, we'll look at that in uh, just a few minutes. So once you've found the literature that you need, or once you've found enough literature to get started, one of the things we need to do when we start writing a literature review is to decide on a grouping strategy. And we'll take a look at some examples of how you can group the studies in your literature review. Sometimes this is the key part of starting to write. Once you get this, these decisions made, uh, the rest of the literature review process 
um, seems to sort of fall in place. You need to select a beginning strategy. So we'll look at some strategies for starting out your literature review. Often starting with a nice definition, for example, is a really good way to get going in a literature review. You're going to organize and synthesize the research. What you're not going to do is list the research studies that you found and their descriptions. You want to make a conversation out of your literature rather than make a list. You're going to discuss it critically where appropriate. You don't need to take that too far. We don't need to critically analyze each and every study and identify the weaknesses in the studies. But where appropriate, you're going to discuss the literature in a critical uh, fashion. And then the last thing we'll talk about is being weary of making definitive statements. So here are several ways you can group studies in your literature review. And so when we say group studies, we literally mean talk for uh, a section about one part, talk for a section about another part, talk for a section about another part. So that these form the sections of your literature review. So the body of your literature review can be in three parts in these examples. In the first example, form a group for each type of finding. So suppose for a second that you propose a study that has to do with a controversial subject, perhaps a subject that has had research studies reveal findings on either side of an issue. Perhaps um, you're doing a study that has to do with whether athletes or non-athletes have higher motivation to achieve in school. So if you have a, a subject like that, if you have a set of literature like that, one way to structure that literature review would be to spend some time talking about the studies that found that athletes have a higher motivation to achieve the non-athletes. And then in a later section talk about the reverse, those studies that supported that non-athletes had a higher motivation to achieve than athletes. And then finish up by uh, talking about the studies that had indeterminate outcomes, those that didn't find one way or the other. If you have two variables in your study, and many of you do, you might structure it another way. You could first deal with the first variable, then deal with the second variable, and then talk about studies dealing with both variables. So for example, if you were looking at the correlation between the number of minutes of physical activity students had in a day and their overall academic achievement, the first section of your literature review could focus on physical education, what the status of physical education is in the nation, uh, what the current literature says about the need for physical education. In the next section, you could talk about student achievement. How we're measuring student achievement these days, what are some important outcomes, both in terms of measuring achievement, measuring growth, and what's important to the government. And then in the final section, you could talk about those studies that you're able to identify that talked about specifically the relationship that you're addressing, whether and how physical activity affects student achievement. A final method for structuring a literature review that you might consider is if you have two populations that you are comparing, you might have a structure that looks at each group separately and then looks at those groups compared to each other. For, so for example, suppose you are um, proposing a study in which you are looking at potential administrators with teaching backgrounds and those without teaching backgrounds and their treatment of the evaluation of teachers. So you're comparing these two uh, groups of people in how they evaluate teachers. So you may, in this sort of structure, you would spend some time talking about the administrators or potential administrators with teaching backgrounds. Um, you would then talk about those without teaching backgrounds, and then talk about studies that compare those things, particularly on the variable of interest. Now these are certainly not the only ways to structure a literature review, but there are three very common approaches that readers understand when they read your research proposal. 
a couple of the benefits for grouping in, in some of these ways. This helps us get the overall literature collected, so it, it can help give you a plan of attack even in the beginning stages of gathering data for your literature review. So um, it's very natural, and one of, the, one of the strategies that we'll take is it's very natural to start to look for the intersection of the variables in our study or those that are closest to the research question that we have. By, by examining how we might group this, we might uh, sort of find other approaches, including looking for just a single variable to see what maybe that has to do. So if you're, again, if you're comparing two groups, maybe looking at one group at a time as opposed to specifically those studies that look at the groups together. Um, we also can identify where the strongest studies are, and so where there are more studies than in other groups, and identifying gaps in the literature. And those gaps in the literature can help you um, help you in your explanation of the significance of your study. And so if something hasn't been studied very much, then it adds to the significance of your study. And in a very practical sense, these strategies can provide the basic writing structure for our literature review. So it can really help you sort of just get something onto paper, which is sometimes one of the hardest things to do. So a couple of strategies for beginning a literature review. Again, one of the really hard things to do. One is to is to start with a definition. And these definitions can come from the research articles that you're finding. They can come from professional organizations. They can come from secondary sources like textbooks. You could also start with a quoted definition. So it may be that one of the sources that you find has a really great definition probably based on other literature that they included in their research that really sort of captures the essence of what you're after. And so starting with a good definition or a couple of good definitions even is a really good way to start a literature review. Another way to start a literature review or part of a strategy including the definition to start a literature review is to talk about the problem area and use some statistics uh, to talk about the significance of the problem. So starting the literature review with a statement of significance is also a good way to start. So again it's important that the literature review is not a list of summaries of the studies. Rather that the studies are discussed together grouping studies with important uh, similar findings or building uh, connections with transitions between the studies so that uh, it tells a nice story. And one of the really good ways to get a sense of how this works is to read some research studies. So in our, uh, in our article analysis assignments, take a look at how those studies build the connections between the groups of research uh, and try to emulate that in your own literature review. When studies have similar findings, it reads very naturally to talk about them together. So that if you are taking a look at, for example, the, the connection between school uniforms and higher student achievement, the uh, natural one of the natural ways to approach that is if you find many studies that support the, the increased student achievement um, with the use of school uniforms, then you might talk about those studies together. And then if you find another group of studies that talks about that does not support uh, increased student achievement according to or with the use of um, school uniforms, then you might talk about those together. You don't need to be too specific. So again, our goal is not to summarize each study and provide that summary. Rather, to use those studies to tell a story. So to describe the literature in general terms and use the studies for uh, backup. And so, for example, um, citing a common finding in a group of studies, you might describe those together and then point out one or two specific examples that are important. For example, 
if you're looking at the connection between um, student self-esteem and uh, decreased discipline referrals, you could have a statement something like, many researchers have found evidence to support that increased student achievement can reduce discipline referrals, and then cite several authors that do that. And then say, for example, Smith and Reagan found that, and talk about their specific findings that are particularly illustrative of the point that you're trying to make. To the extent that it's possible, you can use your literature review to point out trends in the literature. So as you read more and more articles, you'll start to see the way the literature is presenting to you, the, the direction the literature is pushing. And it's important then, because your reader will not have read most of that literature, for you to say that it's clear in the literature that this is the direction uh, that the research is trending. So another purpose for the literature and something to talk about is if there are gaps in the literature. So if there are things that the literature has not considered, um, relationships between two variables, for example. So you might talk about a connection, an interesting connection between two variables. Uh, perhaps you're talking about the connection between teacher parking facilities and teachers' perception of their own stress. So for example, you might suggest that if teachers have a very difficult time finding a parking spot in the morning because of a lack of facilities, that may add to the stress of their day. Sort of an interesting, maybe not so common line of questioning. So it could be that you can find, you certainly will find information about teacher stress, maybe not so much about teacher parking. And so part of the point of your literature review can be, I was able to find all of this information about teacher stress and maybe a little bit about parking facilities at school, but I wasn't able to find a lot in the literature that talked about the connection between those two. So in that case, you are pointing out a gap in the literature, and that does several things for you. For one thing, it helps to explain to the reader why you don't have those studies listed in your literature review or discussed in your literature review that talk about the connection between those two things. So you identify the fact that it's not that I didn't look hard enough or put them here uh, because I didn't really want to talk about them together. It's because I couldn't find them in the literature. Um, it's also important because it helps add to the significance of your study. If those things aren't out there, then it may be even more important that you identify those things. Now on the other hand, it's important to recognize that our searches ha are not perfect and that our search may have failed to find the studies that fill the gap. So it, it, we have to be careful about saying there aren't any literature or there isn't any literature that talks about the connection between teacher parking and teacher stress because one of your readers or some of your readers may have seen an article somewhere that didn't come up in your search, perhaps because we didn't search well enough, we didn't use the right search terms, those sorts of things. Maybe there is a, a perfect article out there, or maybe there's a whole set of articles that you didn't find because you didn't look in the right way. Maybe they were in different databases. Maybe they were in um, sources that were not available to the databases that you have. Maybe they were things that you couldn't get full text, and so you weren't able to read and include. And so we want to be careful when asserting gaps that we're not too definitive about it, that we don't say the research is not out there. 
the other thing about asserting gaps in the literature that you can that you can include to sort of protect yourself against this is to talk about the databases and the descriptors specifically that you used in your study and you find this in your in your proposal guidelines you'll talk about the terms that you used to search the databases to find the, da the data that you did so that at least when you say with these descriptors and this database I wasn't able to locate enough um, information about this connection the readers can say oh okay well that's because you didn't use this term and this term and it becomes a little more um, understanding that you didn't find what you were looking for. Similarly throughout our research we should be careful not to use or be cautious to use very carefully very definitive terms such as prove. So instead of using words like prove as in my research proves that this relationship is true or demonstrate that this is a cause of that we use terms with varying degrees of confidence depending on how confident our, we are of our results, how strong the evidence is. Um, so maybe we might use some evidence, we might use the idea the word suggests, we might use strong reason if we believe the data is strong. Keeping in mind that all research is subject to error. So we may have had error in our sampling, we may have had error in the way we collected our data, in the questions that we asked we may have an instrument that is biased in some way. So we just want to be careful not to make grand statements about our research results or to make judgments that could be called into question.